Hey, ladies. How many of you were binge-washing Hallmark last night? Huh? Come on, fess up. It's like, okay, yeah, we get the... How often do you ever get the remote? I mean, come on. Good deal, right? But we're excited for what God's doing with them, and I'm excited to be here with you this morning. And if you would open your Bibles, uh, open them to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. 1 Corinthians 1, 26. As we talk about boasting in the Lord this morning. And we're continuing on in our verse-by-verse study in 1 Corinthians. Um, One of the most uh, interesting books of the Bible because it is a correctional letter that Paul was sending to this group here. And in that first 25 verses, as Pastor Michael has taught us, um, we were really learning about the wisdom of God and the message of the cross. And it's really kind of summed up in verse 18 if you go back to verse 18. It says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So so that's the summary verse of what's been taught in those first 25 verses. And now Paul is going to take a little turn here because he's going to direct his attention to the believers at Corinth. And as he does, he's directing his attention to us as well. And so as we get into this, let's just pray one more time. Heavenly Father, just thank you for this morning. Thank you for each person that's here. And Lord, we just ask that you would speak mightily and powerfully through your word by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul directs his attention to the Corinthians in verse 26. And he says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. Now, I like the way the NIV puts it here. The NIV says this, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. And not many were of noble birth. You know, I wonder when he wrote that, did some of them go, well, what do you mean, Paul? Did they get offended at what Paul was saying? But, you know, actually, if you looked at some of the people uh, who were in Corinth at the time, you realize that Paul was speaking truth here. If you look in the book of Acts, you'll see that uh, Priscilla and Aquila were at Corinth at this time. Now, if you've seen the movie The Apostle Paul, I know many of you have, um, you know, they were main characters in, in that movie, and it showed them in Rome, but they had fled Rome because of the persecution and gone to Corinth, and they were just like Paul, tent makers in Corinth. So they were blue-collar workers, you might say, at the time. Then also in Acts uh, chapter 18, I believe it is, you have uh, Titius, who lived next door to synagogue, and Crispus, who was the synagogue leader. Now, they had some influence within a small sphere of Jewish people. But in the grand scheme of things, in the big city of Corinth, um, they didn't have much influence. So by the standards of the day, Paul was exactly correct, because these folks did not have a lot of power or influence in the community of Corinth. Now, if we were to look at our culture today, what kind of people would we look at and say, these are people uh, that are mighty, that are noble, according to the wisdom of the world today? People that we look up to and 
listen to. And, you know, I think it's kind of crazy when you really think about it. Because our culture seems to place this kind of value that Paul's talking about here in actors and actresses, musicians, athletes. We seem to think that they are mighty and noble and we ought to listen to them. Or at least they think we ought to listen to them. I'm not sure because they seem to speak a lot to us. And then I also think, and as I was, you know, getting ready for the study, I couldn't help but think of the mainstream media. Uh, and, and I don't want to be too critical. I know they're trying to do their job. But it seems like they think they know everything about everything and that you ought to know what they think. Have you ever noticed that? You know, when I took journalism in high school and I worked on the newspaper, we weren't allowed to editorialize unless it had our byline up there. But in today's news, it's, I'm going to tell you what these facts mean. And we seem to listen. And we seem to place a lot of value. And you know, even the church, we, we buy into that celebrity mentality. Have you ever heard someone say, oh, if only that person would come to the Lord, what they could do for the kingdom. Or maybe you even have said that yourself. You've looked at this person, oh, if they just came to Jesus, what they could do for the kingdom of God. We kind of think that way, that celebrity mentality because we think they have so much stature in the world that they could just do great things for jesus but let me ask you something can you think of one famous person who came to the lord and then led tons of people to christ i mean maybe you can i was thinking about it i was like no i i mean i have been influenced by celebrity people who had a long-term relationship with the lord men like tom landry who I had the privilege of meeting when I was coaching football. And what a tremendous example he was as a Christian coach. Um, but I can't think of anybody who, you know, was a non-believer and then became a believer and just led tons and tons of people to the Lord. In fact, what really happens is even though they have all this worldly, or because they have this worldly stature, uh, they come to the Lord and what happens? They throw them right out in front. You ever notice that? So maybe uh, most of you are probably too young to remember this, but I remember when Bob Dylan made a confession of faith in Jesus Christ. Anybody remember that? Bob Dylan. Now, for you young folks, you're going, who is Bob Dylan? Well, listen, there wouldn't be the kind of music we have today if it wasn't for Bob Dylan. He was considered the greatest songwriter of his generation and maybe even of the century. Uh, tremendous songwriter. And he came to Jesus, and they threw him right out in front, and he even did this... Christian album, one of the most famous songs, you got to serve somebody. Yeah, there we go. I know some people are starting to sing it right now. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you got to serve somebody. Some truth in that, right? And we threw him right out there, but when was the last time you ever heard Bob Dylan talk about Jesus? No. And there was even another guy, and again, some young people won't remember, his name was B.J. Thomas. Have you ever seen the movie Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid? Raindrops keep falling on my head. Come on. Okay. That's him. And B.J. Thomas became a Christian. And in fact, he did a great Christian album, which actually was influential in one way because when my son was four years old, we were listening to that album, and he asked me, Dad, can I accept Jesus? And I said, you sure can. And I pulled the car over on the side of the road, and my son accepted the Lord right then and there. So he had some influence, but then, guess what? They threw him right out in front, and guess what happened? Went right back into drugs and alcohol. 
and he struggled a long time, and I've seen him lately, and apparently he's beyond that now, and I praise God for that. But you see, that's what happens. These people with worldly stature, and I can't think of one who's then be, you know, just become this great witness for Christ, but I look at the guys that, who have been a great witness for Christ, and I look at their humble beginnings. I think of, I think of Billy Graham, a man with very humble beginnings. I think of Greg Laurie. If you've ever read Greg Laurie's story, that's some humble beginnings. If you haven't already, maybe get his book, Lost Boy, and you'll see what I'm talking about. And I think of Pastor Chuck Smith. These were men of very humble beginnings, men that were nothing in the world. And God has used them in a great and mighty way. Why is that? Why is that true? Well, look at verse 27 and 28. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. Verse 28, And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that He may nullify the things that are. Why? Well, the answer is verse 29. So that no man may boast before God. So that no man may boast before God. God has a reason. He's not going to use people with the worldly stature. And I'm not saying they can't be used because many have. And usually down the road, after they become a Christian and matured a little bit. But God takes the foolish things of the world, the humble things of the world, even the despised things of the world, so that no man may boast before him. Now look, since Paul is asking these believers to think about what they were before God called them, don't you think we should do the same? Shouldn't we look at ourselves a little bit and go, hey, what was I before Christ called me? And before I responded to his calling. Now, if you think that God called you because you had it all together and he was really getting a good deal when you came into the kingdom, well, you need to think again. And I was thinking about this and I went back to when I accepted the Lord. I was 13 years old and I I thought, you know, I'm really kind of glad that I was only 13 years old when I accepted the Lord because I had nothing to boast about. I could barely tie my shoes. So, you know, there was, I had nothing to offer the Lord when I came to Him. The only thing I knew, and it was because of the preaching of the cross that we've been talking about in the last couple weeks, that I realized that there was nothing I could do or nothing I had that would get me into heaven. And if there's one thing that the New Testament makes clear, it's summed up in the next verse in verse 30. Verse 30 says this, But by His doing... You are in Christ Jesus. And this is a concept that we must grasp. You and I, we are in Christ Jesus by His doing, not our doing. He provided the way of salvation by His death on the cross. He provided our victory over death by His resurrection. And He provided us the measure of faith that was necessary for us to receive his gift of salvation. You see, it is all by his doing that we have a relationship with him, and it's all by his doing that we maintain 
that relationship. Philippian tells us that he is the one who's going to bring this good work into completion or perfection, right? Not us. It is all by his doing. And we're never to take credit for the work that he has done. And I think that when we truly understand that, when we truly believe that, it brings about probably the most important character trait that we should have. You know what that character trait is? I know a lot of you are going, okay, wait, wait, it's supposed to be love. Love, love. No. Love is an action that we take. Love is part of who we are. But the character trait that we need to have is humility. It's humility. You see, again, that's what this is all about. We cannot boast in ourselves. We need to have humility. And this is what 1 Corinthians is teaching us. And now next, Paul is going to teach us something else. He's going to take us beyond that salvation and what else Jesus brings to us as we respond to his call. So he says in that same verse, who became to us wisdom from God. Now that's kind of interesting. He became to us wisdom from God. What does that mean? Well, think about it. Before you came to Christ, what kind of wisdom did you have? Now maybe you were starting to read your Bible and Maybe you kind of read the Proverbs and you, you started to see what wisdom was. But before we came to Christ, before the Holy Spirit indwelt us, the only wisdom we had was the wisdom of the world, the wisdom of the flesh, carnal wisdom. That's what we had. And as we've read earlier, what's that worth in the kingdom of God? Zero. Zip. But that's what we had. So Jesus became to us wisdom from God. Any wisdom that you or I might have. And, and I really appreciate it when, when people come in, maybe for counseling or whatever, and they said, well, I'm just, and we have one guy in this congregation, he always walks in and he says, I'm looking for some pearls of wisdom. And I'm going, well, if you're looking at me, you're looking at the wrong place, okay? Because any wisdom I have comes straight from his word. Straight from the power of his Holy Spirit. Any wisdom that we have, and we need to understand that is received from Jesus by the power of the Spirit. And then it says, he became to us righteousness. Now, righteousness in two senses of the word. And I think it's important to understand both of them. One, and, and Pastor Michael is so good at teaching us, and he talks about the great exchange of the cross. And and. And that is so true. But two parts of that righteousness. One is, we're now legally not guilty. Now let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. Before we came to Christ, were we guilty of sin? Yes, we were, absolutely. But when we came to Christ, we are legally, are standing legally as we are no longer guilty. We've been acquitted. We've been forgiven. In actuality, someone else has taken that sin from us so we are legally not guilty and that's awesome isn't it it's awesome to know that but there's a second sense and and i want to use this term it's his act of righteousness you see jesus was righteous completely perfectly righteous and his act of righteousness in other words the ability to do what's right in god's eyes is now available to us you see before that time before we came to Christ, before he paid the penalty for our sin and we received that 
gift of God. We didn't have the ability to do what was right in God's eyes. We may have tried, and we may not even really try to do what's right in God's eyes, but what we thought was right and the right thing to do, but we didn't have that ability. So Jesus became our righteousness in the sense that we now have an ability to do what is right before God. That's amazing, isn't it? We have the ability to do what's right. We don't always use that ability. We don't always use it. We don't always walk in the Spirit and allow Him to do that work. But we now at least have the possibility and the ability to do what's right in God's eyes. And then it says He became to us sanctification. Now that's a big word. And if you really want to know what that word means, you've got to come to the next Firm Foundation class. No, that's okay. We'll talk about it right now. You see, because of our new relationship with Jesus, we are now becoming sanctified. Sanctified really means set apart. Set apart from the world and set apart to God. That's what we become. And it's a process that takes place. And the closer and closer we draw to the Lord, the more set apart from the world we become and the more set apart to God we become. Have you noticed that in your Christian walk? That's why we say, you know, hey, we know we can't be perfect. We know we're not going to do things right all the time, but can you look back at your life and see how much more set apart from God you are this year than you were last year? I've been walking with the Lord over 50 years, and believe me, that first 10 or so, that was slow growth. Wow, way too slow. But you know, I can look back and go, my life was beginning to be set apart for God, but then it became more set apart for God and more set apart from the things of the world. Now, I'm not there yet, and you're not there yet, but some of the things that happen, first of all, your worldview changes. Your worldview changes. Your worldview before you came to Christ was a worldly worldview. You saw the world the way those influential people told you to, those news guys told you to, the movies told you to, the music. How many of you guys... Okay, I'm dating myself again. How many of you guys sang all those Beatles songs, you know? And, and that was your worldview. All we need is love. <laughs> well, that's true. But I would change it to all we need is agape because that means something different than the Beatles meant, let me tell you. See, we had, that was our worldview. That's how we saw the world. So our worldview changes as we're being sanctified. Our behavior changes as we're sanctified. And if our behavior isn't changing, you're supposed to be being sanctified. You maybe better take a look at what's going on. Your behavior should change. And I thought about it this way. I, I thought, you know, our thoughts and our desires transform from selfishness to selflessness. Can I say that again? Our thoughts and our desires transform from selfishness to selflessness because we're looking to please the Lord. Now, I want to say that I know that's true because I, I got to tell you, I was a very selfish person, and in my flesh, I still am. The flesh doesn't change. It's only by means of walking in the Spirit that I've become more selfless than selfish. Um, and that's part of my sanctification. That's what the Lord is doing. And then it tells us that there's one more thing that Jesus becomes, and it says He's our redemption. He's our redemption. I love this word. 
in, in actuality, this Greek word, it's apolutrosis, and it was used in the slave trade. And what it meant was the ransom payment to buy back a slave. That's what it meant. Redemption, the buying back. And Jesus was and is our ransom payment. He became our redemption. He's redeemed us from the bondage of sin and the bondage of death, and he's given us freedom just the way a person who would walk up to a slave owner and say, I'm buying that, and then says, now I set you free. It's amazing. Then in verse 31, it says, So that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now this is a quotation from the book of Jeremiah, and I would love for you to turn back there if you would. The book of Jeremiah, back in the Old Testament, chapter 9. Jeremiah chapter 9, right in that section of all the prophets there. And if you would look at me with me, uh, Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. And I'm going to read it out of the NIV. I think it's a little simpler to understand. It's Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. And it says, this is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom, or the strong boast of their strength, or the rich boast of their riches. But let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord, who exercises kindness, justice, righteousness on earth, for in these I delight, declares the Lord. Isn't that awesome? And that's what Paul is quoting when he's saying, if I'm going to boast, I'm going to boast in the Lord. Because it's only because the Lord has given me the understanding to know Him, the one who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. Well, as we move into chapter 2, I want you to remember this. this is not, there's no chapter breaks in the original letters. Paul is continuing this same thought as he moves into chapter 2 right here. And what he's going to do, and this is what I love about Paul, and, and I think that that's why a lot of us who stand up here in a pulpit and preach use personal examples, because I look at Paul and that's what he did. And so he's going to come into a personal example. Remember he said, okay, I want you guys to think about what you were. And I wonder what they were thinking as, as they read that. And I wonder what you were thinking when you read that. But Paul now says, look, verse 1 of chapter 2. When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. And again, I want to read this in the NIV to you. It says, and so it was with me. Brothers and sisters, just like with you, you weren't much of your calling. He says, so it was with me. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. You see, Paul had come to Corinth in true humility, knowing that the, the techniques of persuasion that were really the, the pride of Greek culture, the ability to use rhetoric and persuade people, that was the pride of Greek culture. And he came to Corinth not doing that. He knew that that wasn't the way to bring people into relationship with Christ. So he says in verse 2, he says, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And 
as Pastor Michael has been sharing for the last couple of weeks, this was the message that Paul was bringing to the people at, at Corinth. The message of the cross, of Christ crucified. But I do want to make something clear here, because we could get the idea of, okay, so Paul was in Corinth, and all he ever talked about was Christ and him crucified. And I don't think that's exactly what he's saying. He says, I came to you with that message. So he did. That was the message he came to him with. But I don't think Paul, and as his custom was, he would get up in the synagogue each week and begin, began to teach. And I don't think Paul got up and stood up and said, Jesus Christ was crucified, so repent and turn to him and then sit down. You know, kind of like the street preachers that like to go out there and yell, turn or burn. I don't think that's what Paul did. I think that's kind of a silly thing to think because after all, if we look at the book of Acts chapter 18, we see that Paul spent 18 months in Corinth. That would have got a little repetitive if he just would have said that over and over, would it? And I think that uh, we, we need to understand. What Paul is saying here is that this is the message of salvation. And that there's no salvation apart from the message of the cross. But not only the cross. I know that Paul said that, but I think that it's implied that he was including the resurrection. Well, why do I say that? Well, 1 Corinthians 15, 17, Paul tells the Corinthians, he says, if Christ hasn't been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. And so it was the message of the cross and Christ crucified and raised from the dead. And it was that simple message and not any worldly wisdom that brought the Corinthians into their relationship with God. And remember that this is a correctional letter that Paul had written to them. And he wants to remind them that he didn't try to win them using eloquent speech or methods or gimmicks or anything else. And by the way, Paul was very capable of using eloquent speech. Paul was a highly educated leader of the Jewish people before he became a Christian. He knew how to do that. But Paul realized that all of his pedigree and all his wisdom that he had before he came to Christ was worth absolutely nothing when it came to preaching the message of salvation. And he knew that none of that could earn his way into heaven, so he certainly wasn't going to share with the Corinthians that there was any other way to heaven. So he kept his message, the cross, Christ crucified, Christ raised from the dead. And so he continues in verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 2. So he says, I didn't come with you to you with eloquence and speak. In fact, it was just the opposite. He says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And I relate to this because I promise you, every time I stand in this pulpit, I am coming in weakness and fear and trembling because this is God's word and I revere it so highly and I don't ever want to mislead anyone when it comes to teaching the word of God. So I know what Paul's talking about in one sense. And Paul really means this. He's not just saying, he's not showing a false humility. You know, sometimes people say these things, and it's just like, yeah, I just want to show you how humble I am. No, no, no. That wasn't Paul here, and I'll tell you why. Because before Paul got to Corinth, he had been beaten up, he'd been thrown out of towns, he, he'd been spit upon, he had been treated horribly in other places that he went when he preached the gospel. And I'm sure when he came to Corinth, he was thinking, well, Lord, here we go again. What are they going to do to me here? 
he probably was very fearful. And, and how do we know that? Well, if you look in Acts 18, the Lord at a certain point says, Paul, don't be afraid. I'm going to give you many people in this city. Don't be afraid. Well, look, when do we need to be told to not be afraid? When we are afraid, right? So the Lord told Paul, no, don't be afraid of Corinth. And then Paul stayed for a year and a half teaching in Corinth. In verse 4, he says, And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest upon the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. You see, one thing that Paul found out when he was in Athens was that wise words and good debating skills was not the key to bringing people to salvation. Now, this will take a few minutes, but I would like for you to turn back to Acts chapter 17, if you would. Acts chapter 17. Starting in verse 22. So this is Paul when he, when he came to Athens, and I want you to see what happened to him. Acts 17, 22. It says, So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Verse 24, The God who made the world and all the things in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. Verse 26, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him, verse 28, we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and thought of man. Verse 30, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now, if you read through that, you realize this was absolutely brilliant rhetoric. This was the style that should have wowed the Greeks as he, he was explaining step by step. This is how they related one to another by this kind of brilliant rhetoric and following of logic. This was huge for the Greeks. He was using their methods to bring the gospel to them. And you know, I, I would agree that whenever you're speaking to a group of people, you do need to find some common ground, something that they relate to and, and understand. I think that's very helpful. But look at the results here. Acts 17, 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. Others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. Now, I, 
I don't really think they meant that. You know, I think that's one of those things like when we're trying to get out of something, we'll go, oh, oh this is great. Hey, let's do this some other time, okay? Because I really want to hear more of this when you have no intention of listening to it again. But maybe not. That's my speculation. But it says in verse 33, so Paul went out of their midst after this. So he had used this brilliant means of rhetoric and logic and bring them to a conclusion. But as soon as he said anything about resurrection of the dead, they just went, yeah, okay. So you see, it wasn't of much benefit. In verse 34 there, you see that there still was a few converts, though. It says, Some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Aeropagite, and a woman named uh, Damaris, and others with them. So there was some results, but there wasn't this this big uh, coming to Christ, like when Peter gave his first sermon and 3,000 people were saved. So I can't say for sure, but I think if you follow along in the book of Acts and watch how Paul shared the gospel after that, I think it's possible that after that experience, Paul may have realized something, that that even his ability to use rhetoric, his ability to be so logical and and use the methods that, that might bring someone to the Lord, I think he realized that it doesn't really work, that ultimately... No one's going to come to the Lord without the drawing power of the Holy Spirit. And I think when he came to Corinth, he he realized that, and so he said, I don't need to do that. I'm sticking with the simple message of the cross, Christ crucified and raised from the dead for your salvation. And that's what he did, so that no one can boast in themselves. You see, if Paul was able to bring people to the Lord because of his brilliance, then who gets the glory? Who gets the credit? Oh, it's, you know, if I wasn't so sharp, maybe these people wouldn't come to the Lord. And you see, if our faith, if our faith was based on the wisdom of one man's words, couldn't a wiser man talk us out of our faith? And in fact, doesn't that seem to happen? We see people come to the Lord and then somebody gets a hold of them with their their cultic... um, rhetoric their cultic materials and talks them out of their faith so if our faith was dependent on one man's words i'm not sure it's true faith and even if our faith was dependent on us if it had anything to do with us then god's not sovereign now don't get me wrong here i'm not teaching that we do not have free will I absolutely, categorically, and if there's any Calvinists in here, you can check with me afterwards. I oppose that teaching. I believe that God has given us free will. But without God's intervention by the power of His Spirit, giving us a measure of faith that we need to accept His gift of grace, we couldn't even receive that gift. We would not have the capacity to believe the message of the gospel unless the Holy Spirit was drawing and God was giving us the measure of faith to do it. Does that make sense to you? That's what makes sense to me. That's why it says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast so that no one may boast. And as a gift, it's something we still, the only step we have in the process is to receive. To as many as received him, 
He gave the right to become children of God. That's pretty clear to me that we must receive. That's the only step that we make. But as I said, we couldn't even do that without God giving us the ability to do that. So now, instead of persuasive words, Paul says, here's my message. And as it puts in the the NIV, it says, and a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Now, I want to get back to that. A demonstration of the Spirit's power. What is he speaking of here? That's kind kind of wide open. And I think there's a couple of possibilities, and I think we should think about both of them. One is that Paul may have been used by God to perform some miracles in Corinth. God may have given him that ability. He gave it to him at other times. He gave all the apostles abilities to perform miracles. Now again, it's not in their own flesh. It's by the power of the Spirit. But that happened. That could have happened in Corinth. We don't know because the book of Acts doesn't tell us that. So since it doesn't tell us that, we don't see that there, it makes me wonder, is he talking about something else? And I think there's a second possibility. And when you think about it, there are people who come to the Lord because they see the power of a miracle, right? Maybe some of you have. Maybe, maybe someone in your family was healed and you finally went, wow, God is real, and you came to the Lord. But you know, that number is kind of minuscule compared to the amount of people who have come by the simple preaching of the gospel. And so the other possibility, and the one that I lean towards, is that he's just referring to the drawing power of the Holy Spirit. And the power that's in the simple gospel message. He's saying, by the power of the Spirit, you were able to accept this simple gospel message that I am giving to you. And I don't think there's really anything more powerful than that. And in fact, Jesus even said, you know, uh, even if one were raised from the dead, they would not believe. Remember that? So, signs and wonders are often awesome, and they, they can bring people to the Lord, but it's the power of the Spirit drawing a person and illuminating the simple gospel message that I believe brings people to Christ. And I think that, that should, if you don't know that already, and, and, and in the church today, I would say it might be a revelation to some churches today and some pastors and teachers today that it's that simple gospel message and the power of the Holy Spirit that draws people to the Lord. Because I have to be honest with you, my heart really breaks when I see so many churches today using gimmicks and eloquence of speech and methods in their speech and ways of manipulating people's emotions to come to the Lord. And even to the point where oftentimes they don't even preach the true gospel. They don't preach sin and repentance from sin and Jesus and Him crucified. Oftentimes it's that, that prosperity doctrine, that gospel that, that says if you do this you're going to be healthy and wealthy and you need to come to Christ or, or even that that one that says, well, look, just come to Jesus because your marriage will be better and your family will be better. Well, those things are true, but that's not why we come to Christ. You know why we come to Christ? Because we're sinners in need of a Savior. And they would say, but that offends people. Yeah, it does. It offends people when you say you're a sinner and you need a Savior. Why? Because we want to hear, oh, you're so wonderful. You're so sweet and so kind. 
Jesus would be so happy to have you in the kingdom. That's what we want to hear. But that's not the gospel. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside to myths. And in case you're wondering, that time has come. That time has come. I'm not sure it wasn't always that way, but it certainly is true now. And, you know, that, that preaching of, of prosperity and health and wealth and living your best life now, well, that might put a lot of people in the church pews and it might put a lot of people in their own wealth. It might fill the, the coffers of the church, but that's not the gospel. And it's not a gospel that's going to save you from the wrath of God. It's Jesus Christ and Him crucified and Him raised from the dead to bring you new life. You see, it's about the fact that Jesus did for us what we couldn't do. To pay the price for our sin. We couldn't do it. There's nothing that we could do to earn our way in to heaven. And that's why we put our trust in Him. Because He's the one that did the work. And I, I asked this question a couple of times, and I think we should ask it again. I, I've often thought about this. You know, if Jesus didn't do anything else for us, I mean, he does so much for us. We come to him, we ask for things, and he grants us things, and sometimes he doesn't, thank God. But even if he never did that, if the only thing he ever did was die on the cross so that we could have a relationship with him, wouldn't that be enough? Wouldn't that be enough? And that's why we boast only in the Lord. And you know what? As we read this and as we contemplate on the fact that we only boast in the Lord, the good thing is that we get to boast in the Lord. And we should boast in the Lord. And we shouldn't be shy about boasting in the Lord. Let's go ahead and boast in Him. Let's tell people, let's let the world know that we have a God that loves us so much that He came to earth in the form of a man, that He died on the cross to set us free from sin and death, and He rose again on the third day, demonstrating victory over death, and He evermore lives to intercede on our behalf. Can we boast in the Lord? Yes, let's boast in the Lord. Amen? Amen. Praise the Lord. When we're out in the streets and the highways and the byways, at work when it's appropriate, not when you're supposed to be doing something else, but when you're with someone else, talk about the Lord. Boast in the Lord. Don't boast in yourself. Remind people that I was nothing when I came to the Lord. Oh, yeah, I might have had even some great worldly stature. And I know there's some people in here that did. It wasn't me, but some of you did. You had good worldly stature. But when you came to the Lord like Paul, you realized it was worth nothing. It was worth nothing in the kingdom of heaven. So I'm going to boast in the Lord and I'm going to tell you about Jesus and what he did for us. And I'm going to boast in the Lord and I'm going to boast in the cross. And let's be people who boast in the Lord. Amen? Let's be people who share the truth of the gospel. Simplicity. When you're out there and, and I know so many of you struggle with sharing the Lord, don't think you have to come in eloquence of speech or with great wisdom. Just say, I know one thing for sure. The cross, Christ crucified, risen from the dead for me to pay the price for me 
and he wants to do that for you as well. And so as uh, Tim and Sandlin come back up, I asked them to do this closing song because it's, it reminds us of this. And as we think in, of the words and as you sing these words, just let it, let it be the words from your heart this morning. The song is, I'll boast only in the cross. It's so fitting. So let that be our heart's prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, just thank you. Just thank you, Lord, that we can boast in you. And Lord, help us to realize, like Paul, like these Corinthian believers, that it doesn't really matter what we were before we came to you. We might have been of lowly estate, but maybe even in the economy of the world, um, we did have influence. But in the kingdom of heaven, the only thing that matters is that you came and you lived and died for us, that you rose again, Lord, to give us new life in you. And Lord, that you are our redemption, you are our sanctification, Lord, and, and setting us apart more and more for you. And as we just live each of the days of our life here, we pray, Lord, that you would draw us closer and closer to you. Lord, that you would sanctify us even more, that you would remove us even more from the, the worldly ways that we have, from our flesh, Lord, to walking in your spirit and to be more set apart for you and your purposes this morning. And if there's any one of you this morning that, as you were hearing this message, maybe it was the first time you really understood this. Maybe you, maybe you even thought you came to the Lord, but it was for the wrong reasons. It wasn't because Jesus died to save you from your sin. If that's you this morning, then you can just offer up a simple prayer and ask the Lord to come into your life to receive the gift of salvation, to put your faith and your trust in Him, to have a desire to live for Him the rest of your life. You can just say those words to Him this morning. And he will accept you into the kingdom. And so, God, I pray for anyone this morning that that's the case, that your Holy Spirit is drawing them. There's no eloquence of speech here, Lord. There is only the gospel. And so, Lord, for each other person here that maybe realizes that they have kind of set themselves on the shelf a little bit, that... They're not growing in you the way they should, Lord. I pray that you would work in their heart also this morning. And as we sing this song this morning, oh, Lord, we have something to boast in. We don't have to boast in ourselves. We can boast in you. So, Lord, give us the ability to do that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Savior died for 